Listener Production. This episode is all about Eve. Eve is Dr. Eve Reese, an award-winning writer, podcaster and historian. Eve is trans and uses they-them pronouns and joins the weekend briefing to talk about their new book, All About Eve. Eve was 30 years old when they came to the understanding that they were trans. In the years that followed, Eve's life was upended by gender transition. After being called Anne for their three decades on this earth, Eve had to not only grapple with their own knowledge that they were not a woman, but they had to tackle other people's reactions as well. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. The Weekend List is on its way where Tate McGregor joins me to recommend what people can watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with Eve Reese about the challenges and joys of being trans and what their experience can teach all of us about what it means to be human. Eve, welcome to the podcast. All About Eve has just hit shelves. Could you introduce us to your memoir? So this is loosely a um, a transition memoir. It's the story of how at the age of 30 in um, 2018, I suddenly discovered I was transgender. You know, before that I'd lived as someone um, female assigned, I'd lived as a woman, and then at the age of 30 I realised I was trans. And so this memoir I've written really is the story of what comes next, you know, what happens when you realise in adulthood that your identity is actually quite different and what does social transition look like? What does it look like to change your name, your pronouns? And then also dealing with medical transition, you know, what does it look like to consider having surgery or hormone replacement therapy? So it's the story of the kind of the last three years of my own life, but I also interweave my story with, I suppose, broader kind of political, social and historical analysis of what it means to be trans in Australia today, but also, you know, historically and around the world because, you know, my day job is I am a historian, so you can't take my kind of historical part of my brain off. You are a historian and the book is very much grounded in history. And I know this is going to be a painful question for a historian to summarise things that have happened over time. But do you think you could speak to how society has treated, responded to and understood or perhaps better misunderstood trans people over time? Can you give us a bit of a sense of maybe even just the last 50 years or so how attitudes have changed? Yeah, sure. So, I mean... It's important to start by acknowledging that, like, trans people have always been here. We've always existed in one form or another. You know, often terms like trans or non-binary or genderqueer get discussed as if they're like this newfangled kind of overly woke trend when of course there's so much evidence in cultures all around the world that there's always been people who aren't men or women and have kind of existed in some other gendered space. For, you know, the last kind of 150 years or so, you know, in Western countries like Australia, the US and the UK, trans people or gender non-conforming people more generally have been really, really stigmatised. Their transness has been treated as a kind of form of deviance or a disease, a kind of medical condition that needs to be diagnosed and managed by um, doctors. 
And, you know, more generally in mainstream culture, um, they've been really, really stigmatised. You know, trans people have been treated as freaks, as deviants. You know, in movies, they're often the murder victims or the murderer themselves. They're the kind of deviant outsider sex worker. So there's been really, really pejorative associations with trans people for a really long time. That began to change in recent decades. And we often talk about this moment in 2015 called the trans tipping point, which was um, a moment when Time magazine put um, the trans actress Laverne Cox from Orange is the New Black on the cover of the magazine. And it's kind of a shorthand for a moment when suddenly trans people started making art themselves and appearing in, you know, mainstream TV, film, writing novels and memoirs and kind of taking back the narrative and saying, actually, no, we're not freaks or deviants or, you know, perverts or victims. We're actually just ordinary, complex, messy, flawed, but beautiful humans like any other that moment is just building and building. You know, we're seeing great things like Elliot Page, this huge celebrity come out as trans in late 2020. And, you know, moments like that have really helped kind of mainstream acceptance of trans identities. And as a result, there are just more and more people coming out as trans or non-binary in Australia and around the world. Eve, you're an academic and forgive me, I'm going to go on a slight tangent for a moment, but you work in universities and it's been a really hard time for academics during lockdowns with JobKeeper not being extended to universities. It's been a hard time for anyone who works in a university. This is a news podcast. What's been your observation of your colleagues' experiences and your own experiences over the last 18 months with universities kind of being left out a little bit? Great question. To be perfectly honest, it's been brutal. It's been really brutal. Um, So for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, Australian universities of the last decade have relied so heavily for their income on international student fees. And of course, COVID absolutely decimated that market. Like there are no international students. And that's had huge, huge financial repercussions in terms of, you know, universities' ability to pay their staff. Before speaking to you this morning, Jamila, I've just been in several hours of meetings um, for La Trobe about the change process we've undergone, which is a euphemism for redundancies, basically. Um, And it also has kind of flown effects to the next generation that people who are finishing PhDs now aren't going to be able to get jobs probably in research, you know, and they've spent decade or more of their life developing this expertise and now it kind of can feel like it's all for nothing. And it also impacts student experience because these huge experts are not in the classroom anymore. And what we're seeing is this bigger trend toward the casualization of teaching, which often results in a poorer experience for students. So it's a real tragedy for the country. I mean, I think I saw statistics this week that one in five workers in higher education have lost their job. And Yeah, which is just really mind-blowing. And so there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of grief, and which I think is going to take a long time to process. Did you always want to work in academia? <laughs> I, I kind of did. I was like such a nerd in high school. My father worked as an academic, so I suppose it was a kind of model that was available to me. Yeah. And, you know, I loved, I loved research and writing, and I realised in, in high school that this was academia was a career where you could get like paid a pretty good salary to do those things. So I was pretty unusual in that I started, you know, an arts degree after I finished high school, like knowing I 
was doing an arts degree to become an academic. You know, I think a lot of people, they do a BA because they're like, oh, I don't really know what I want to do with my life or just do this because it's general. I was like, no, I'm going to become a historian. Um, So I did that and, you know, went off and did my master's and my PhD straight afterwards. Let's come back to your memoir after my brief segue and my own personal interests for a moment. In more recent times, when transgenderism is played out in popular culture or in novels, whatever it might be, it's kind of been plagued by this born in the wrong body kind of trope. I I was wondering if you could talk to me about that and whether or not that resonates for you. And if not, why not? Yeah. It's certainly the case that in um, kind of popular culture and in medical discussions about transness, we're presented with this really narrow image of what it means to like live a trans life. And that is this idea that someone, you know, is born in the wrong body. And so they know at a really young age, like, you know, as young as four or five, that they're in the wrong body. And they might, you know, if they've been assigned female, they might say, oh, no, I don't want to play with the with the dolls and I don't want to wear dresses. You know, yeah. I want to be with the boys and have trucks and all those really stereotypical ideas of what it, you know, means to align with a particular gender or not. And, and in this script, so you're born in the wrong body and then, you know, as you get older, you're meant to sort of really be determined to fight for medical transition yeah. and, you know, I suppose become the opposite gender to that you were assigned at birth and kind of reassimilate into the gender binary. Now that story is really, it is certainly true of some trans people, but it really was not true at all for me. I mean, I, you know, was assigned female, you know, my gender expression as a kid was complicated and varied, you know, I idolised my brother and I played on a boys cricket team, but I also loved playing with Barbies and had a lot of pink clothes and things like that. I certainly wasn't saying I'm not a girl, you know, I'm really a boy as a kid. When I, in my late 20s, when I started to think I might be trans because I started to kind of recognise myself in descriptions of gender dysphoria and transness that I was reading, I had a lot of kind of, I suppose, self-doubt and imposter syndrome thinking, you know, can I really be trans? Am I, am I trans enough or am I just kind of deluding myself because I don't, I don't fit this really neat script. My gender kind of story is much more messy and complex. And it took me a few years to actually realize that like messiness is actually kind of the norm in many ways that because we live in a world where gender is police so fiercely and there's so much transphobia, it actually um, takes the kind of the rare person to rebel against that at a young age. And most kids, you know, they just want to be loved and accepted. So if they're told they're a girl like I was, you're just kind of going to play along with it. And it often it's very common that it takes well into adulthood to begin to question that and even then to have doubts about where you fit on the gender spectrum because I... um, you know, I'm not a woman, but I'm not a man either. Like I call myself non-binary or transmasculine, which is also a kind of another identity that isn't represented in the transcript. So this was a really big part of the reason why I decided to write this memoir, because I suppose I wanted to tell a different kind of story of transness. I wanted to tell like a messy story that's full of kind of doubt and ambiguity and no like neat little endings, because I wanted to validate other people whose story don't fit this kind of very neat narrative and to kind of assert that there's many, many ways to be trans and that they're all valid. I think part of the problem is, you know, there are so few 
trans stories represented in people's lives, whether they're watching TV or whether they're reading stories or whether it's just in friendships and people they know. So many of us live a closed kind of life where we have seen perhaps so few depictions that we start to homogenise them, right? We spoke to AJ Clementine, who is an amazing social media superstar, um, and she's a trans woman recently on the, on the weekend briefing. You know, her story is what you just described. It is that story of knowing from when she was very young. She knew she was a girl. She was just waiting for everyone else to figure that out. Um, And she talks about being annoyed at other people for for just not getting it. And she just sounds like the most fierce 10-year-old girl. (laughs) But that's not everyone's story. But if you only see one or two representations in your life, then, of course, you're going to start to homogenise. And for me, that sounds like you're laying out the challenge to people who make content, to people who tell stories, whether it's on the news or in a novel, to do better and to tell more trans stories. Completely, because there was research conducted last year that showed that only one in 10 Australians like actually knows a trans person. So most Australians, including, you know, people who might be kind of, you know, pseudo trans people or trans people in the making, they're getting their ideas about what it means to be trans from culture because they're not actually interacting with real life trans people. So cultural representations of transness have an enormous influence in what we think this is and whether we see it as something viable for ourselves or people we love. I'm a cis woman and I learned a whole lot reading your memoir. And one of the things that kept being reinforced to me was the importance of language. And that's something that has resonated for me through my life the last few years in another way. I became disabled a few years ago and one of the big conversations within the disability community is should you describe yourself as disabled or should you describe yourself as a person with a disability? And, you know, one of the things I've found is that for me, calling myself a disabled woman comes naturally. For me, that's what I like. It's the, it's the language that I resonate with. And for me, that's because the idea of Jamila with a disability, I know it makes it sound like a disability is a handbag to me. And like, I left the house with the disability today, but tomorrow I might not. And to me, that didn't work because there's no choice. I've always got this. It's always with me. I suppose what I'm trying to make the point of is that language is really important, but language is also really personal. Can you talk to me about the language and the descriptions you use for yourself and why? Yeah, great question. Yeah, the first thing to say is, yeah, language around trans and gender diverse identities is really complex and contested and everyone will identify in slightly different ways. So if in doubt, always, you know, ask and don't assume. I have come to a point where I actually just prefer the term trans to describe myself, Um, not transgender or transsexual, because those are kind of, older terms that have really medicalised connotations, like that language that doctors have given to us and kind of are based in that paradigm that being trans is, you know, is a disorder, is a medical condition, which I sort of really reject. You know, another term which could be applied to me is non-binary in the sense that I'm not a man or a woman. I mean, I'm kind of okay with that language, but I don't love it because it's still kind of negatively defined in relation to the gender binary. It still keeps the gender binary like front and centre, which again, you know, I sort of don't love being defined as a negative. 
What I love about the term trans is it's just so open and freeing. You know, trans as a, as a prefix just means across or beyond. So think about words like transport or transit or translate. You know, it, it just sort of means fluidity. It means movement. And I love applying that to myself as my gender because it just means I can be many things. Those things can change on a daily basis. I can't be pinned down. It just feels really joyous and liberating. That is the best description I've ever heard. I'm a feminist. I talk about discrimination against women for a living. I write about discrimination against women for a living. So this is a somewhat selfish question. How do we talk about the very real discrimination against women in our community in a way that is inclusive rather than exclusive of trans people when by the very nature of what we're talking about we do have to talk about gender? Yeah this is a really tricky one and I think you know I don't have any like neat answers for this in a way it's going to be like an ongoing cultural conversation which will play out over the next few years. So it's so tricky because you know I'm a feminist too and most trans people would call themselves feminists. But feminism still you know white liberal feminism that remains dominant in Australia is still really structured around the idea of the woman, you know, like women fighting for women's rights, you know, women against men. And this is really tricky when it comes to trans people because how do they fit into that story? You know, there's a minority of so-called feminists who don't think trans women are women. You know, that's a pretty ridiculous argument that you can throw out pretty easily. And, you know, it's not that tricky to include trans women into the category of women. But people like me, like non-binary people, transmasculine people, we're more complicated because, you know, someone like me, I was assigned a woman, I lived as a woman for many years. So I know, you know, I've I've had rape threats against me. I've been sexually yeah. harassed and assaulted. I like I share the embodied experience of many women. Um, but I'm not a woman. So how do we talk about feminism that includes people like me? Feminist organizations are becoming more aware of this issue. But what they're kind of tending to do so far is a fairly, you know, to put it bluntly, a fairly tokenistic inclusion where they'll say, you know, our program or our event is for women and non-binary people, which sounds nice, like it sounds inclusive, but all it's really doing is just like tacking non-binary onto the end Mm. of an existing structure or conversation. And that effectively just kind of collapses non-binary into the category of woman. It just kind of makes it sound like we're just women adjacent. You know, we're effectively women, which is just like it's trans erasure, like it's not great. So what I'm essentially saying is I think we need a deeper conversation about when we organise feminist spaces, when we talk about gender inequity, what are we actually trying to achieve in that space and who needs to be there for that work to happen? So rather than just kind of rely on this kind of quite lazy idea of, you know, women's versus men, but to really think about if we're trying to tackle patriarchy, who who needs to do that work? And often men might need to be included as well because although men, you know, they profit from patriarchy, they also suffer under it as well because they have their own really restrictive gender norms. When you were writing, did you have a reader in mind? I, I know when I'm writing, it helps for me to have I'm, I'm very perfunctory, literal pictures of the kind of people that I'm writing for to remind me of the tone that I want to take, the kind of expression I want to take. Were you thinking about trans and gender diverse people? Were you thinking about cisgender audiences, 
neither, both. Yeah, I totally had audience in mind. In a way, I'd say my kind of ideal audience was women like my mother, um, who is a white baby boomer woman who's, you know, well-educated, generally like socially progressive, but was pretty ignorant about trans stuff and, you know, just kind of basically had no idea. And I suppose seeing, having lots of conversations with my mother over the last few years and seeing how much her views on transness and gender could change as she sort of went on this journey with me made me, I suppose, really excited and motivated to bring these ideas to other people in her demographic. You know, I'm aware that people, you know, millennials like me or Gen Z, you know, tend to already be pretty educated um, on trans issues. But, you know, I wanted to capture them as well. But I suppose I was really writing for this kind of ignorant but well-meaning cisgender reader who might be coming to trans ideas for the first time. You just spoke about your mother. Our listeners are a young audience, but many have children, especially babies and young children, or they're planning to have a family one day. And the data tells us that a bunch of those kids are going to be trans. I know that you started asking yourself questions about being trans in your 20s, but do you have any advice for the parent or potentially the future parent of a child who is going to go through life asking some of the same questions that you did? I do. I think the main piece of advice I would give would be to try not to be afraid. You know, I know that's hard for parents. Parents are kind of hardwired to be afraid for and protective of their kids. You know, so often parents have less than ideal reactions to their kids coming out as trans, not because they don't love them, but because they're they're fearful and reactive about, you know, what being trans will mean for their child and the potential suffering that might lie ahead. But, you know, the reality is being trans is really joyous and it's a wonderful, empowering life. So if your child is telling you they're trans, it kind of only does harm to react with fear because you're sending your child the message that being trans is bad and you're kind of reiterating the message that, you know, they're already getting from the world and it's not going to stop them being trans. Like, you know, if someone is trans, the only way they're going to be fully happy and live a fully realised life is to come out and affirm their gender. Like you can't expect anyone to be happy while being closeted. So I think, you know, as much as possible, I'd encourage parents to avoid fear and actively celebrate their trans kids because it's a privilege to parent a trans child. This is someone who knows who they are and is prepared to say that and be that in the world, even in the face of the world's hostility and mockery often. How awesome to have someone like that in your life. Like, I think just that's so cool. Eve, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for having me. That's all we've got time for with Dr. Eve Reese, but you can buy their book. And oh my gosh, you really should, guys. All About Eve is available at Booktopia now or at your local independent bookstore. And that's a place that really needs a little bit of a helping hand and a little bit of economic stimulus. So that is the place to buy their book. Coming up next, The Weekend List with Tate McGregor. Don't go away. 
and welcome Tate McGregor to the studio, who I believe has a watch recommendation, which is what we all need because while it feels like we've reached the bottom of the streaming services, we haven't. There's still more to watch. I won't lie to you. I think I'm a little bit late on this train, but the third season has just started rolling out for sex education on Netflix. If you haven't heard about it, it's a British teen drama comedy that sees Isa Butterfield, who you might remember from The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, or Hugo, as the lead character Otis. And he has a mum who's a sex therapist. Now, Otis, from what he's learnt from overhearing his mum's sessions, takes his sex life guidance to school to help his classmates in like a little side hustle business as a sex therapy clinic. You'd love it for the teen drama, you know, there's some high school classism, there's characters, sexuality development, and just a bunch of unlikely friendships. Plus, it's just a really great mood and pace. So season three is out now. So you can binge sex education on Netflix to catch up. Here are the students currently attending what has been dubbed the sex school. There is a battle happening in the sexual health of our teenagers. I will get more back on track. I appreciate that one. I need something I can go back in time and do the binge of. And a lot of people have been talking about this and I just haven't got on the train. A new recommendation for you folks, and this is another Netflix, is Made. So Made is about Alex. She's a 20-something wannabe writer. She lives in North of Seattle, I think. And she has just had an argument with a man when the season opens and he has punched a hole in the wall. When he falls asleep, she gets their two-year-old daughter Maddie and she gets out of the house and she and Maddie are about to be homeless for the first time in their lives. It is not the last time in their lives that they are going to be homeless in this series. And she gets a job as a maid. It is a story about poverty. It's frustrating and sad and bitter as you watch this mum and daughter move in and out of shelters and friends' places and couch surfing and halfway houses, whatever it might be, trying to break out of this cycle of poverty that they're trapped in. But I also think it is illuminating, it's important, and there's some really beautiful, beautiful acting in it. Highly recommend this one. It's a hard watch, but I think it's a critical one. When I think about the house I want for my daughter and me, it's not big and full of stuff. Our space is a home because we love each other in it. Tate, what else have you got? If we're still on this melancholic sort of train of thought, I've got a soundtrack to go with it. It's Phineas's album Optimist, which is out this week. If you're not across Phineas, he's the older brother and the sole producer of Billie Eilish, and he's been touted as the world's number one songwriter of 2020, according to Spotify. So you just know that this is going to be a body of really excellent quality work. So outside of his work with Billie, he has his own solo project, which you'll often see open for Billie's shows while she tours. And this is his second album, Optimist. We've heard a couple of the tracks already, the 90s and a concert six months from now. But his sound is a lot less bombastic, less sort of scary than Billie Eilish's soundscape and is a bit more of a like melancholy tinged crooner. So if you're into a bit of lost love, romantic... Check out Phineas with his new album, Optimist. If I could see the future, 
Gorgeous recommendation, Tate. And I am going to give you something a little bit happy to end the recommendations with, and that is a recipe recommendation. It is from food52.com for toasted sesame cookies. These are ridiculously delicious. They are a mixture of white and black sesame seeds on the outside. There is a chocolate chip variation you can do if that is your feeling. They are kind of thin and crispy and they're really fun to cook and fun to kind of roll into all of the sesame seeds afterwards. They don't take that long to prep. They don't take that long to cook, but they are so yummy, perfect for whatever picnic you are planning this weekend. God, we just love a bit of picnic planning, don't we, in this podcast? We're fiend for a picnic. Well, we don't have a whole lot else to look forward to, Tate, so I think it works, right? That is all we've got time for today, everyone, on The Weekend Briefing. Thank you for your company. If you would like to make sure you never miss an episode, then you should subscribe to the Listener app where you can follow us and find us there. You can also find us on all of the podcasting platforms. We will be back Monday morning, bright and early, where the gang will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.